I love the biblical stories, not because I'm a rabbi, but because the biblical stories are, are symbols. Who doesn't know the story about Adam and Eve? Do you really believe that the world was created in six days and then suddenly there was a person there who felt a little bit lonely, so God made life more interesting by creating, by splitting up that person into two persons? Uh, I mean, is that literally how it happened? To me, the fact that the Bible talks about one person, and that person was not a man, that's a mistake. People think that since it was Adam, but Adam means a person, a human being, in Hebrew. Later it became a boy's name, so people think it was a man. But the Bible says it was male and female. That person was male and female. And then it was split up. Why only one couple? Why, why not a hundred couples or a thousand couples? Uh, and the answer is because we shall understand that we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. Nobody has more blue blood or red blood. It's a symbol, a wonderful symbol. We all are descendants of the same people. Bent and my grandmother were rescued from a little fishing boat on the shores of Sweden in 1943. That year, the estimated number of displaced people in Europe was somewhere between 21 and 30 million, and there would still be two more years of war. Communities were completely annihilated, and lone survivors like my grandmother were displaced across Europe. Hitler's final solution eradicated Jews from Belgium, the Netherlands, Denmark, Norway, Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, the Baltic countries, Romania, and others. And as the war continued, Italy and France would also join this list. Sweden was a neutral country. After they were saved by the Swedish fishermen, Hannah and the other refugees who escaped from Denmark were helped by the Swedish Red Cross. They quarantined us in an agriculture school where we slept in the gym on mattresses and they processed us. But before they quarantined us, of course, they asked all these questions and do you have relatives, do you have any way to make a living in Sweden and so on. Not having any other options, Hannah exchanged her labor for room and board. So I... Asked the school whether I could stay there and work in the kitchen. And they said yes. And I got room for that and food for that. I wore a big, heavy sack apron and cleaned the herring. And then I also washed those big kettles where they make the food. She stayed there for eight months working in the kitchen. Until the spring of 1944. Then she decided to go to school again. Women didn't have a lot of options at the time, so she decided to do what she did in Denmark and offer to work in exchange for an education. So I started 
repeating myself, I started applying to nursing schools because um, what did women become? School teachers, nurses, nannies. So I did the same thing and I was accepted in one hospital as free tuition if I do the manual chores, which I did. I cleaned the hallways, I cleaned the instruments, I cleaned the toilets, and I stayed there to get nursing education. Working in the hospital, Hannah realized what she wanted to do with her life. She wanted to become a midwife. I know when I witnessed the first birth as a nurse, I thought I'd die. I mean, I was crying and crying and crying and crying. I couldn't believe. So that's what I really wanted to do, bring life to the world. Hannah started working towards a nursing degree. In the meantime, Allied forces began a massive invasion of Europe. Over 150,000 British, Canadian, and American soldiers landed on the beaches of Normandy, France, forcing Hitler to relocate his army and his resources to Western Europe. This resulted in Germany's defeat in the East. With Hitler distracted fighting the Americans and British, Soviet troops advanced into Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Romania. The Soviet army's rapid advance into Poland surprised the Germans, and they rushed to destroy the evidence of their mass murder. This led to one of the first liquidations of a concentration camp, Majdanek, in July of 1944. The Germans demolished the camp built in occupied Poland, but the gas chambers remained standing. Germans transported the prisoners deep into Germany to other concentration camps. Some by train, but most in forced marches. They walked hundreds of miles without proper clothing or shoes. Tens of thousands of people died in these death marches from hunger, or because they were shot, because they couldn't keep up. For those who did survive, many ended up at Bergen-Belsen, a concentration camp in Germany. It was overcrowded and plagued with disease. In April of 1945, when British soldiers liberated the camp, they found a scene unimaginable, even for a horror movie. Thousands of dead bodies were strewn about the camp. There was no running water. The 60,000 prisoners still alive were stuffed into barracks. They were fed only three times a week. A British soldier who was there recalled, quote, the bodies were a ghastly sight. Some were green. They looked like skeletons covered with skin. The flesh had all gone. There were bodies of small children among the grown-ups. In other parts of the camp, there were hundreds of bodies lying around. In many cases, piled five or six high. Two weeks later, after the liberation of Bergen-Belsen, Hitler killed himself in his underground bunker. Just over a week after that, Germany surrendered. This is the BBC Home Service. 
We're interrupting programs to make the following announcement. It is understood that in accordance with arrangements between the three great powers, an official announcement will be broadcast by the Prime Minister at three o'clock tomorrow, Tuesday afternoon, the 8th of May. In view of this fact, tomorrow, Tuesday, will be treated as Victory in Europe Day and will be regarded as a holiday. The war is finally over. Finally, the war is over. It was 1945, and now a new crisis emerged. Where was home? Where were the millions of stateless people supposed to go? A rumor spread around Sweden. If anyone had fled from Denmark during the rescue operation, whether they were Danish citizens or not, if they returned, they would get citizenship. Now, you have to understand that all these years I was citizen of nothing. And it's very, very difficult to move around without citizenship. The idea that she could be a citizen of Denmark was huge, so she went back. They interned us again, and we were quarantined again, and I had again nowhere to go. Now, I was not a Danish citizen. That woman was false. You didn't become a Danish citizen. I wasn't a Swedish citizen. I wasn't a Czech citizen. I was nothing. I'm Rachel Cerati. We share the same sky. By the end of the war, Europe was in ruins. Leaders were redrawing borders, and millions of displaced people were searching for any loved one they could find who might be alive. In the six years of World War II, Roughly 80 million people had died, 4% of the world's population. The first year I traveled following Hannah's story, I spent a lot of time thinking about open borders. In my 10 months in Europe, in 2014 and 2015, I never once had to show my passport. All of the countries that Hannah's story took me to were part of the Schengen area, a mutual agreement of 26 European countries who had decided to abandon passport control at their borders. But by the time I returned to Europe the next summer, the summer Sergio and I had our wedding party in Denmark, the political climate had changed. The American presidential election was underway. The British had voted to leave the EU, better known as Brexit, and political unrest in the Middle East and Africa drove staggering numbers of people to seek asylum in Europe. Hundreds of thousands of migrants were doing exactly what my grandmother did. They fled persecution. The number of displaced people in the world climbed so high that for the first time it surpassed records set after World War II, and people weren't happy about it. Scenes of rioting, and that's amid growing tensions over record numbers of migrants. The migrants, many of them escaping war zones, only to now be confronted with a wave of assaults and arson attacks. 
Hundreds of refugees heading to Europe have apparently drowned in yet another tragedy in the Mediterranean. They died when their boats capsized near Egypt. European countries have recently reduced search and rescue operations for likely stranded refugee boats. They took the measure as part of plans to halt the inflow of, of asylum seekers, escaping war in Africa and in the Middle East, especially Syria. More than a thousand people gathered to demonstrate against a new refugee center. There is something unsettling about standing in a square once named after Adolf Hitler and listening to thousands of Germans chant nationalist slogans. As politicians started adopting xenophobic and anti-immigrant platforms, the shift in politics changed my grandmother's story. No longer was her survival just a redemptive tale buried in the shadows of the past. It was a forewarning, a symbol. The first time I visited the fisherman's family in Sweden, when my grandmother's boat came to shore, they brought me to see a house a few streets over from them. They told me that this house was where my grandmother stayed that first night she made it to Sweden, before she was quarantined by the Red Cross. I took a few photographs. The house had been a bed and breakfast, but now it looked empty. The grass around it was overgrown, the trees were bare, the windows were shut, and the sign once advertising open rooms had a big white X over the name. A year later, when I returned to Sweden, I walked back over to the house. The grass was now a healthy green, and the bushes were filled in. The summer hid the skeleton of bare branches, and a few wooden chairs created a social space on the yard. As I picked up my camera to snap a photograph, a teenage boy walked out onto the wraparound balcony. He flashed me the peace sign. Then a woman came out of one of the ground floor doors. No photos, no photos, she said, so I pulled my camera away from my eye. I walked towards her and introduced myself in one quick breath. Hi, my name's Rachel. I'm from Boston. My grandmother stayed here when she was a refugee in 1943 during the Holocaust. I'm here working on a documentary project, and I'm just wondering, why can't I take pictures? She told me that there were teenage boys living in the house now. They were all refugees from places like Afghanistan, Syria, and Somalia. They'd all come without their parents, and they'd all come by boat. She told me it was better if I didn't take any pictures, because some people hated that the refugees were here. She said that they'd come and burn the house down if they knew where these boys lived. After that, I started reaching out to refugees in Scandinavia. So we could start by having you introduce yourself. I photographed and interviewed them. I got to know them. Uh, <laughs> I'm not the best at that, but like, okay. So my name is Moody, and I'm 27 years old. In my mind, they'd become part of my grandmother's story, too. And, uh, yeah, I'm from Syria. And I've been living in Denmark for the last four years. That's how I met this guy, Moody. And in this episode, I want to spend some time with him. Can you tell me a bit about where you come from and what home is like? I grew up in Damascus most of my life. I had a great childhood I didn't come from like a, a rich family, but we were, you know, uh, uh, middle class, as you can say. Yeah. Uh, but we were rich in love, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, I'm a basketball player. I played in a professional level in Damascus and I played for the Syrian national team. I met Moody in Copenhagen 
He's tall, 198 centimeters tall. Translated for us Americans, that's about 6'4". When the war in Syria began, Moody was 18 years old. He was just starting his career as a professional basketball player. He was close with his family and the oldest of four siblings. When the war started, it wasn't like really something that you could feel in the beginning because it was starting very slow. It started very slow that we adjusted with it. Like we we had, we lived a normal life with it. So we got used to it day by day. The Syrian war started in 2011 when pro-democracy protests erupted throughout the country. The protesters were challenging President Bashar al-Assad. They demanded an end to the authoritarian practices of his regime, a regime that had been in place since his father had become president 40 years before. Assad responded to the protests with military force, and by 2012, the uprising had turned into an all-out civil war. That's when bombs started going off in Moody's neighborhood. That was the most scary part because it started to be like everywhere and anywhere. You really don't know when is it going to happen. You're just like going to your practice or going wherever I have to go. And then suddenly you just hear like a crazy noise of a bump. Quickly, politics fractured relationships between neighbors, family and friends. People started to uh, get divided by like who is supporting uh, the government, who is not supporting the government, who supports the revolution, who doesn't support the revolution, and all this kind of thing. So even between my friends, we divided. And then playing basketball became dangerous. Small flyers began appearing in the locker rooms, threatening the team. The flyers warned that if Moody and the others continued to play, they'd be killed. But we didn't care about it, to be honest. We just keep going. Until one day in 2012. I have a friend in my team called Basil. He used to play in the national team for many years. He's older than me. He was like a big brother for me. I learned a lot from him. I was still 18 at that time. And uh, one day after the practice, he was shot in his car. Around 10 shots. And he died after that. That was like the moment where everybody like uh, figured out that this is not a joke anymore. It is serious and it's happening. After that, in a few months, another friend of mine unfortunately died. Another few friends of mine got into the prison. We used to be a great big group. Now we are just like getting smaller and smaller. International organizations and leading powers tried to bring the conflict to an end, to no avail. And the fighting came closer and closer to Moody's home. It was dangerous to go out in the nighttime. There's always fights happening. So sometimes uh, if you don't hear shooting during the night, then you can't sleep because it's not normal. Then you are really scared. So I remember the days when there was no shootings. We were like all sitting like, there is something wrong, like... They need to start shooting somewhere because otherwise you are really scared that it's going to be in the same neighborhood where we are. And then when we listen to them fighting in a different place, they're like, okay, great, now we can sleep. You don't feel it and you feel it at the same time, you know, but life has to go on and 
when you live in there, it's your country and it's your place, it's your home. You're not gonna just like give up from the first uh, moment, and you will have to. Sometimes there is no other option because okay, now you can't live. What what should you do? For Moody's family, that question came at the end of 2012, when one day brought so much fighting to their street that they could see bullet holes in the buildings next door, dead bodies covered the ground. My mom just said, no more, we, we are leaving. We're leaving the country. The first thing I did, of course, I just went to my wardrobe, actually, and I took all my basketball clothes because that's something that I have been like collecting since I was a kid, so... I couldn't like leave it behind. I, I, I took only all this and I took my laptop and that's it. What else was important for your family to take with them? At that moment, we actually didn't want to take anything because the only thing you think about is just leave. Like right now, the plan is that we're going to Egypt and then, you know, hopefully we'll come back after like maybe one month, two months when the situation is better. Moody's mother was Egyptian, so they went to Alexandria, where her family came from. In Syria, Moody made a good living playing basketball. But once they got to Egypt, his ability to support himself disappeared, and he began having to rely on his parents. Any money he did have in savings became worthless. The Syrian pound dropped in value with each passing week. He did find a basketball club in Egypt that wanted to sign him. But the rules stated that because he wasn't Egyptian, he would be considered a professional. And each team could only have two professionals on it. And American players were always chosen first. So he thought maybe he would study. But once again, because he was Syrian, he could only enroll in private universities. He wasn't eligible for the free education that his Egyptian peers received. He was 20 years old, and he felt like his future had been robbed. I had the thoughts, of course, that I wish, like, I, I'm not living in Egypt and I would love to move and I would love to go somewhere else. And there was a rumor going around. He was hearing about these illegal boat rides that took people to Europe across the Mediterranean Sea. But he had strong feelings about that. He thought it was crazy that people would risk their lives just to get to a new country. I was, like, against it 100%. Who, who the fuck do something like that? <laughs> it's so stupid. Back when Moody was playing basketball in Syria, he met a lot of Europeans and Americans. That is one of the reasons his English is so good. He had coaches from places like Romania and Macedonia. He had contacts in other countries and friends who had gone to Europe to play basketball. He looked to them for help, to maybe get him a contract with a European team. He told them that he didn't care about the money. He just wanted to be living his own life again. It got close, especially with the team in Spain. Contracts were sent over, plans were made, but the visa never came. Rejected because uh, because I'm Syrian, you know. Was it because of the war that it was difficult to get a visa or in general would it have been difficult? I don't believe that it is difficult if there was no war because a lot of people go for trips like for vacation to go just like visit some country. Of course, if you have a job and if you have a life in Syria, like they know that, okay, you're going to just go and have a trip and come back. So a lot of people used to do that for vacations and stuff like that. And um, because also Syria economically was healthy 
and there wasn't that much troubles that makes you actually want to like just live somewhere outside and something like that people were happy there but yeah after the war of course they wouldn't give you a visa because they know you are moving you will never go back and they consider stuff like that so so you can't just say oh i'm going for vacation they know very well what's gonna happen <laughs> it's gonna be the longest vacation you ever take in your life <laughs> so then he tried illegal routes he tried to get a fake visa which would cost five thousand dollars a huge amount of money for anyone in egypt his friends and family all chipped in with money to help make this possible for him. But right when he was supposed to make the exchange, money for visa, the man he was negotiating with disappeared. So uh, then it was like, that's there is no chance like anymore. And I, depression started to attack and like start, life started to be like different and like it really got tired. And then I gave up. I was like, that's that's it for me it's like uh, I gave up and then uh, that uh, idea came up into my brain and the same idea that I used to say that it was uh, so stupid by like traveling on the sea it just like hit my brain again and I'm like maybe I'm gonna do that fuck it Moody found a smuggler that said he could get him on a boat for $2,500 half of what the visa would cost he said the next trip in one week I was like, cool, perfect, I'm doing that. Had you talked to your parents about wanting to do this before? Like, did they know it was on your mind? No, no, no never. My, my, they would never expect that because they know that I'm the most person that is against it. Like, I, I just keep, like, swearing at people doing it. So, he waited to tell his parents until the night before he left. According to the people who made it, usually they make it in, like, eight to 10 days max. So I just packed according to the plan that if I make it, it's gonna be that, and if I don't make it, then it doesn't matter <laughs> because it's gone. Moody understood that when traveling by sea, there are only two options. You either make it to shore or you drown. You live or you die. He filled a bag with a few cans of food an extra pair of shoes wrapped in plastic bags, a pair of jeans, and one shirt. He didn't bring his passport or any identifying papers with him, knowing that they would get wet and ruined. He had no phone, no computer. Simply the bare essentials of what he might need along the way. The smugglers directed him to a part of Egypt that wasn't far from the Libyan border. There, he met around 250 other hopeful migrants and refugees. They waited in the empty darkness where the desert met the sea. They had to move people in groups, then they had to move two small boats that takes you to the big boat. When I say big boat, I don't mean big boat. I just mean it was bigger than this small tube was. But it was very small too. These smaller boats were essentially fishing boats. Once their group was called, Moody and the others had to swim to it and climb on board. Each was filled with about 20 people. And from there, they were transferred to the big boat. And then suddenly that boat, when the moment we entered it, started to moving further. It started moving further, 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 further. And it didn't stop. So we thought, like, oh, maybe we made it, like, now he's moving. 
The first thing that this uh, people think about is crossing the international sea. Because the moment they cross, then they, we are safe. The boat Moody was on made it into international waters. But then they stayed still. The passengers huddled together, and as the sun rose, they began to panic. Why weren't they moving anymore? So we are asking what's going to happen now. Are we done? Are we moving? They are like, no, we have to take the other people. The fishermen told them that the police attacked the other boats. Only they made it into the International Sea. So they had to go back into the Egyptian waters and get the other passengers. And we were like, but that's dangerous because you are again going into the Egyptian Sea and going outside again. They went back anyway. But once in the Egyptian waters, the fishermen got word from the smugglers that it was too dangerous to transfer the migrants. So again, they sailed back into the International Sea. Every time they have to come and leave, we're losing one day because they have to go always in the nighttime. This happened for exactly 10 days. 10 days on going in, they get a call from outside telling them, like, it's dangerous, there's police, go back. We go out. We go in, there's a word, go out. No one on board knew what would happen next. They stayed still on the boat in the water, moving back and forth waiting for the smuggler's directions. We started to run out of food. Even the this fisher started running out of gas. We are losing patience. We don't have any, like, connection to the outside world. The fishermen started fighting with each other over what to do with the passengers. They can't go back to Egypt with us. They want to go back to their families as well, but if they go back to Egypt with us, they will be in a big trouble because we are already in the international sea war. So where did you get these people from? You know, and also we will be in troubles because we didn't leave the country legally. So we are entering illegally now. So like we don't have papers, we don't have anything. They started to talk about leaving us in a small island somewhere. It was just so tiring like to think about it and like it was so scary at the same time because you really don't know what could happen. On the 10th day, the fishermen made contact with a boat returning from Italy and it was decided that the passengers would transfer to that boat. Before they moved us, they asked us all to sit down the corner because there was a high wave, so the boats were like, they were trying to connect them to each other with rope, but it keeps hitting each other. The passengers were told to prepare to jump from one boat to another. And that hits, you know. It started to break a little bit of the wood inside the other boat because it was so strong. Everyone would have to jump anyway. You know, you are 10 days in the sea, you don't have like any power. The muscles is dead, everything is like not working. And they were just like holding the person. When the boats come close to each other, they throw it to the other uh, boat. And it was so scary to look down. There's a sea that is so crazy and the waves are high and the boats are hitting each other so bad. And every time they hit each other, they just go like far from each other. They were just throwing people without thinking about it. So for me, I I was just imagining, like, you know, being in in between. When it was Moody's turn to jump, he pushed everyone away. He didn't want their help. I was just, like, standing there and they holding my arms. I was like, just leave me alone. I'm going to jump. I'm going to do it myself. Because if I fall, then I fall. It's my fault. I always know that I jump high and all this, but I was like, no chance. Like, 
I'm, I'm not gonna make it. I can see it's far. And I don't know how, like, one of my legs touched the other boat. And then the guys hugged me, you know, and then they threw me inside the boat. I was shaking so much. I couldn't look behind me because there was another, like, 18 people going through the same process. And I was just hoping that everybody can make it. Everybody did make it. The new boat was filled with more than 300 migrants who had been collected from various other boats in the sea. They were told that they were maximum only one day away from Italy. We asked the captains, like, where are we at? Like, what's happening? And, like, and they're like, yeah, yeah, tomorrow we are arriving. Amazing. Then tomorrow comes, hey, what happened? Where are we at? It's like, yeah, some problem happened, but yeah, tomorrow we are arriving. For three days this went on. Moody and the other passengers who had come from Egypt had now been at sea for 18 days, double of what he'd heard was normal. I slept so much in the boat that somehow I started understanding, like, the sea. I started understanding, like, the sun, what time it is without looking at the watch because I don't have a watch. I started to tell it could be now around two and a half because the sun is right there. As he got better at feeling the time from the sun, he started to sense something else, too. Something, like, was uncomfortable. I I started feeling that something is not going right. I can't see the sun on top of my face during three hours, two times. There must be a problem. So Moody said something to one of the other passengers, a man from Iraq named Hassan. I told him, Hassan, I feel like there's something wrong. He said, yeah, tell me, tell me. I feel something wrong too. What do you think? I said, I feel like we are rolling around same spot. Hassan agreed. So they went to another passenger who they knew had a phone with enough battery left to open a map with GPS, even though they were offline. He turned on his phone and we looked at the location and there where we were shocked. We are basically still between Egypt and Libya. So we haven't even moved. So we have been for the last few days at the same spot. Then things started to be out of control. They confronted the captains. The other passengers became paranoid. And as the news spread, that fear became anger. And when the anger came, the boat became unstable because everyone was moving. The passengers threatened the captains. They told them that if they didn't tell them why they were staying still, they would throw them into the sea. The captains confessed. They were waiting for another shipment of people. We were, what? Like, if you put one extra person on this boat, it will sink. We are 320 people in a boat that doesn't take more than 50. And they are like, yeah, but they got a call from outside that they have to wait for another shipment. The captains told the passengers that if they moved, the smugglers might kill their families. People went insane, the captain started crying, like, begging us to, like, stay stable and, like, you know, just to accept it. Nobody, of course, accepted that. We forced them to move. And that was the day when they started moving for real because we told them we are following you on the map. As they finally headed towards Italian waters, the sea became the enemy. It was the most scary day ever during the trip because the waves were so high that I swear when the boat is going up, with the wave comes, 
you could look at it you think that it, it will hit you and it will kill you then the wave come and lift the boat all the way up and then when you look you can see that the sea is too far down it's like you're on the fifth floor or something it's too far down and, and everything is dark in the middle of the day there was no rain it was just waves and crazy hurricanes or whatever happening and it stayed like that for the whole day and the whole night we were all screaming and like we know that any wrong move could make the boats flip around and everybody will never never no matter what never can survive this a few days after the storm the boat arrived to italy the best thing to see is like a ground in front of you after like 21 days in the in the sea without seeing it according to the un refugee agency in 2013 60,000 migrants came to europe by illegal boat rides across the sea in 2014 when moody crossed that number jumped to more than 200,000 people and in 2015 it was reported that more than a million migrants and refugees arrived to Europe by sea and of those million half were Syrians fleeing the war it's also estimated that in this peak year 2015 4000 people drowned trying to cross the mediterranean sea most of these people the survivors and the victims were refugees they risked their lives to flee war conflict and persecution in their home countries In Italy, Moody was helped by the Red Cross. He told me that he didn't even recognize himself. He was sick and very skinny. During the course of the trip, he lost something like 20 kilograms, around 44 pounds. His beard grew big and his skin became dark. He spent the first night in Sicily and then went on to Milan, where he found someone who helped get him a fake ID so he could fly to Denmark. And in Denmark, he did what asylum seekers are told to do. He turned himself into the police. I didn't have any reason to come to Denmark to be honest, but it's just like that the fact that uh we always hear that Denmark is the heaviest country in the world. So, I believed in that. And the other main reason, of course, it was the language. I I knew that in Denmark it's the second best country speaking English after the United Kingdom. The Danish Refugee Council placed Moody in a small town on the Danish island of Jutland. His parents sent him important documents including newspaper clippings that proved he was a professional athlete. He began playing basketball again and slowly adjusted to life in his new normal. And soon enough, he made some connections that got him a tryout for a basketball team in Copenhagen. When I came to Copenhagen for this tryout, I stayed only one night, but I remember that I loved the city. Like the moment I I walked in the streets and watching how people are living and like sitting in cafes and like I never sit in a cafe <laughs> because I was like I'm broke as fuck. I was looking at people, I was like this is exactly where I belong. Like this is this is the life I want, you know? I looked at it like one day like I will be sitting there. I'm going to do that no matter what it takes. And he did that. He made friends, got himself a job, and even started coaching basketball. God, Lawrence, Sabo, Horia, Horia. And slowly, you know, I started like 
Now fighting for experiences, you know, learning something new every time. In the beginning, I was like thinking that I would never find a job. It was not like that at all. I just had to step out a little bit outside and talk to people. And all the places that I said I want to go and eat and try, I did it. So <laughs> now I'm good. <laughs> I'm not a window shopper anymore. <laughs> Only in the end of the month. The first time I met Moody, our conversation went back and forth with ease. He told me his story, and I told him mine. I told him all about my grandmother and how she fled Czechoslovakia when she was just 14. I retold the details of her escape as if I was there, lingering on the night she was lost on the Baltic Sea. In spite of the darkness that lived in each of these narratives, each was redemptive in its own way. But this isn't the case for so many war stories. It is a survivor to tell history. Uh, that's also survivors that tell about the war, then people think that, well, war is not so bad because to survive. If it was one of those that didn't come back, uh, it would be a different story. This is Bent again, the rabbi who, as a young boy, was on the same refugee boat as my grandmother. You cannot compare uh, one catastrophe with another. Stories are not going to repeat themselves exactly the same. The story of the rescue operation will not come in the same way again, but it is a simple, it is a teaching. For some reason, people often ask me, have you not been afraid you were sitting there in the sea and not knowing whether you would drown or whether you would reach land and which land you would reach? The waves are high and the boats are hitting each other so bad, you know. Were you not afraid you were in war and uh, there were those to the right of you and to the left of you that were hit by bullets? It started to be like bombs everywhere and anywhere. I have been threatened in my lifetime over the phone and by letters in the most uh, crazy ways. Saying that you shouldn't come, otherwise you will be killed. Are you not afraid? And honestly, life is dangerous from the moment you were born. People today are afraid of terror. And of course terror is terrible, but terror is not killing. Terror is, is uh, fear. Terror means uh, you make people afraid. And if you are afraid, then they won. Remember when I came here with Sergio, when you met him a couple years ago? Yeah, yeah. Or more than a couple now. But um, And we were talking about this idea of being scared, and we were talking about the Jewish song. Maybe you could sing a little bit of it for us. The Jewish song? Yeah. The world is a very narrow bridge. Well, one of the Hasidic rabbis formulated the sentence, all the world is like a narrow bridge. The major thing is never to become afraid. Geshe 
נמצא מאוד. והעיקר, והעיקר, לא לפחד, לא לפחד כלל. והעיקר, והעיקר, I have a firm belief in a world without war. I was once asked, what is happiness? Happiness is not to be afraid. A world where nobody is afraid. We Share the Same Sky is produced by Erica Lance and me. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and other podcast apps. Please subscribe and leave a review. We're also on Instagram and Facebook at Share the Same Sky. Every episode comes with photographs, videos, and a curriculum that you can use in the classroom. Learn more at sharethesamesky.com. Thank you to USC Shoah Foundation for making this podcast possible. My grandmother's story is one of nearly 55,000 testimonies in their archive. From survivors and witnesses of the Holocaust and other genocides. This podcast is also supported by Echoes and Reflections, a program for Holocaust education throughout the United States. I'm Rachel Cerati. Thanks for listening. <laughs>